Entre el epicentro, la bola pica, va a dar contra la pared el hit 3000. Lo logró, lo logró. Un doble para recuerda a este hombre. El espectáculo en que extraemos nuestras memorias para torcitos de nostalgia sobre jugadores periféricos del pasado y presente. Bienvenidos ustedes a un otro episodio conmigo, James, y mis amigos a mis lados. Aquí estoy otra vez, Justin Díaz, uh, con ustedes. Es un placer. Y uh, vamos a cambiar a inglés porque nuestro. Hombre especial para hoy. No puede hablar el español tan bien como nosotros, but yep. we're going to switch it back to English for you. Please introduce yourself. No, I feel like I'm letting down my ancestors right now. I could have tried, but it would have been much slower than both of you and not great audio for this audio-only format. I'm going to stick with, with English, the language that I know the best. So I'm the very special guest, Xavier. Well, welcome, Xavier. Bienvenido. Hey, we've taught you all at least one word. That means welcome. And hombre means guy, which is one of the things we want to talk about. But the first thing we want to talk about is one of those other words I said, memorias. And I would like to know, Xavier, ¿Quién está haciendo memorias para ti ahorita? I just say Aaron Judge. Is, is, that, is that the answer? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's fair. <laughs> is it the guy who's, hitting, who's hit 60 home runs and is leading in the triple crown right now? I got very, very mad twice in the past two days when a Pirates pitcher down nine in the bottom of the eighth pitched around him with four straight balls in the dirt. Like, that is the most coward shit ever. And then yesterday, I feel like having to punch all of Fox for this. Bottom of the ninth inning, judge up, tie game against the Red Sox, barrels it, cameraman just shoots straight up in the air. Like, oh, he's a moonshot. It's caught on the warning track of the deepest part of the field. I actually looked into this. He hit it 113 miles an hour with a launch angle of 35 degrees. All 19 times that it happened for any hitter in Major League Baseball history were home runs. Until Aaron Judge hitting it 404, literally right at the wall. The first time that was ever not a home run. And if you extend it out to between 111 to 115 miles per hour, 99% of the time, it's still a home run. So that was the biggest, I want to go fight a camera person that I've had in a long time. But you know what? There are still over a dozen games left. He's going to break the record unless something insane happens. Knock on all of the wood in my entire apartment. Now, let's be clear. Aaron Judge has come out and said he's probably not going to break the record because he considers the other ones that... I understand why you don't. I know why you don't I'm consider them. Not. AL record. I'm not even going to get into the Bonds decision. AL fair. record. Fair. You know what? And That's absolutely record. fair. So if, okay. he, if he gets 62, he has the record for both the Yankees and the entire American League. So that that is what I am counting as record. I do not want to get into any of the sure. other stuff about it. But sure. it's just been an absolute delight watching him this. It's incredible. He's hitting, I think it's it's over, it's almost 490 for the month of September with a 1.604 OPS and a slugging over 1,000. It, it, it's an incredible, it's an incredible month. Anytime you can cut the OPS in half and still be above league average, you're probably doing all right. You're not doing too bad. Anytime people see your slugging and probably assume that your slugging is your OPS, you're doing pretty well. 
Yeah, he's been absurd. And I loved watching last night because for Fox broadcast for the local in Philadelphia, obviously, is the Phillies. Fantastic win last night for the Phillies. But they would go live to New York every time that judge was up. Obviously, this is potential for history. And I just loved every single time. It could be an 0-2 count, and the pitcher throws a great slider diving towards the outside that judge just barely lays off. And just the simple fact that the pitcher throws a ball results in the loudest boos I've ever heard from any New York crowd. And those people, as a Philadelphian, I can tell you about booing, and those New York people love to boo. So the fact that it was that loud just for a ball, that shows you how invested every single fan is on on every pitch of a judge at bat. What upsets me the most about the booing regarding the balls now is like he's seen this last month more middle-middle balls in the zone than almost any other batter. I don't know why people are throwing these pitches to Aaron Judge, and I don't know why they're throwing more of them this month than they have any other month. I mean, I can tell you why. It's because his plate discipline is incredible. I I haven't seen a player with plate discipline like this since Bonds, in that when he first came up, he still had the power, but he chased a lot. He has cut that completely out of his game. He also now has respect from the umpires a bit. And earlier this year, I, I talked a lot about the low strike where Judge had more low strikes called against him than any other player in the league by hundreds over the past couple of years. And now he's getting the call where, hey, that's actually a ball because he's six foot seven. Now that he's getting those calls, he's laying off of them and he does not expand the zone. He walked three times yesterday, despite the fact that everyone wants to see him hit a home run. And it's a 3-0 count. You can expect him to try to go. No, he'll he'll take the walk because he wants the team to win more than anything else. So he just cares about getting on base. And because his plate discipline is so high, some pitchers who don't want to just force walks will try to get him to chase something and just miss a spot. The best place to try to pitch him is probably up high. But if you miss that, you leave it hanging, he's going to crush it 460 feet. It's a very good season, and I will, if he breaks the record, be slightly less annoyed when he wins an MVP award that I still don't believe that he should win. That's fine. We like talking about just, sports. Just it's think a good about conversation. this way. It takes someone breaking the AL home run record and winning the Triple Crown to dethrone Otani, and you still have the argument for Otani to win. That's how special a player Otani is. Yeah, he's better, but his team <laughs> sucks ass. And I the, mean, Angels, hey. the Angels should go to jail for what they have done to Trout and Otani, as I have said in the past. Here's, here's the hypothetical that I want to pose to both of you. I forget if we already did this on here, if I read it somewhere else, but how good of a pitcher would Aaron Judge have to be to be considered a better player than Otani in your mind, James? Like, if we're talking, if he goes out there with, like, a 3-8 like a ERA and, like, 8Ks per 9, is that good enough? This season, absolutely sure. If if he went out and he was Jordan Lyles this season and just went out every five days and ate some winnings, that's fine. That's an innings eater who can also hit that well is good. If Shohei Otani only did that, I'd still frankly think he was better. This is the last thing that I will say on this because, again, Judge is going to win, whatever. We need to make peace with that. I will say, though, if Otani hadn't had his season last season and this was the first time he was doing this, I think it's pretty indisputable we'd probably be giving it to him. And if that's the case, I'm just of the mind that he should get it again. Listen, I just wish we could have applied that same logic to fucking bitch-ass Nikola Jokic. That's the only thing that I'm upset about from this discussion. (laughs)
Well, Diaz, uh, Nikola Jokic, not really doing anything in the headlines right now, but who is making memories for you? So, making memories for me, obviously, the pride and joy of Philadelphia. You know, we, we love our Phillies. We love our Sixers. We're big on our union right now, but the Eagles are always the number one show in town. And what a show they put on on Monday Night Football. First of all, Jalen Hurts cemented himself as an undisputed QB1 so far this season. The results have been amazing, especially on Monday night. I thought he answered every single question that anybody could have had about him. Not only getting it done with his legs, but also very accurate with the ball, throwing it, spreading it around. And obviously, I mean, just his leadership. And also, I think as important is his swag. This is the swaggiest quarterback in the NFL, non-Lamar division. I'll throw that in as a caveat, James, just so you don't get too upset with that. So second swaggiest in the whole league. The defense is amazing. And uh, Nick Sirianni, I, I am now his biggest advocate. Longtime listeners of this podcast will remember that about this time last year, I was not very big on Nick and his uh, manure slash flower analogies. But the flowers have bloomed, ladies, gentlemen, and folks. So it's been just beautiful to, to see all that. I'm, I'm now going to forever say that I went as him for Halloween in admiration and not in mockery. When you finished that flask of dumbass juice that you had with you, Coach Sirianni, <laughs> yeah. my working theory is I think you might have actually emptied Nick Sirianni's metaphorical flask of dumbass juice. I think you can take some credit for this reverse curse. So I'll take anything I can get. And uh, Nick, if you're listening, I love you, buddy. I'm really sorry. But, you know, as we continue to do this show, you know, we've been building upon the guy universe. And I recently made a discovery that Nick Sirianni, irregardless of the mockeries and now the appraisals that I've given to him is a part of our guy universe. We'll go back to the, the John Galliardi episode of Remember That Guy, the small pond, big fish guy. In that iconic 2003 Division Three National Championship game, the same season that Galliardi became the most winningest coach in college football history, he also won his final national title that year. One of the opponents that he was going against for Mountain Union was their stud senior wide receiver, Nick Sirianni, who led the Purple Raiders with eight catches for 106 yards in that game. The Purple Raiders? <laughs> they are the Purple Raiders. <laughs> the Purple Raiders. I mean, you have to distinguish because, I mean, look, you got the, the Texas Tech Red Raiders. They used to be the, the, the Rainbow Warriors was, uh, was Hawaii. I think so they're back they're, to being Rainbow Warriors because they realized... Warriors was stupid. You're the Rainbow Warriors. I like the Rainbow Warriors. But, yeah, so, I mean, Nick, you know, getting it done for the Eagles, got it done for Mountain Union on that day. Eight catches, 106 yards. So, no touchdowns, but still a solid 18.6 in your PPR, Division Three Fantasy Football League that week. Got it done on the field, getting it done as a coach now. And uh, hopefully continue making memories and assert ourselves as the best team in the NFC, which I think at this point kind of have to say we are. I'm so glad the two of you haven't gotten into fantasy college football yet. I, cu I couldn't do it. I would, I would lose myself forever. Yeah, that's like, I won't see the two of you ever again when you do that. Well, it, it would depend the, the restrictions you placed on it, because even if you just capped it to Division One, we're talking 120 teams. Like, the best players might not even be the best players, quote-unquote. Like, the Alabama guys, all right, they're going to blow them out. They'll be benched by halftime. Give me this random guy getting it done in Tuesday night match. Only air raid. Day. Only air raid offenses. That would be it. But also, quick note, we forgot the Middle Tennessee Blue Raiders. There are Blue Raiders. Blue Raiders. How could we ever forget? 
Fun fact, Elena Deladon's older brother was a backup quarterback for Middle Tennessee State back in the day. Hey, if we put those three colors together, we can have the bisexual Raiders. There we go. I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, bisexual visibility is important. So I think it's important that we recognize the teams as well that, uh, that can help to build up that, that beautiful community. This is Pat Mahomes and Cliff Kingsbury's actual legacy at Texas Tech. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, enough, enough about visibility. I want to see who's making memories for you, James. Well, let's start with a, an update about some less than visible things. I've got a butt buzzing update. So there was a rematch between Magnus Carlsen and Hans Niemann. It was an online match. Did not last very long. Magnus Carlsen, playing second, made one move. He made the move that Hans Niemann had opened their previous match with. And then he dropped out of the game immediately. So read from that what you will, but the butt buzzing saga is not done. One other just real quick hit. <laughs> Toronto, the Maple Leafs, they got a New Jersey sponsor, as many NHL teams are. It's the Ontario Dairy Concern, meaning that there's now just a patch on the Maple Leafs jerseys that says milk. Oh, I love that. That's It doesn't fantastic. say anything. It doesn't That's say so drink good. milk. It doesn't say got milk. It doesn't <laughs> say Ontario Dairy Concern. <laughs> it just says milk. <laughs> we support the idea, the theory of milk. It's, it's pretty incredible. What also oh is incredible. God. I am sorry, Diaz. I have to speak positively about the Mets here for a second. But Ambivalently, I'll say about the Mets. It's not necessarily a positive or negative thing. Recently, the Mets, in a game on September 20th this year, 2022, Luis Guillaume, he got hit by a pitch. And that was the 106th time that a New York Met had been hit by a pitch this year, which does break the record set last year. Do you guys happen to know which team said it last year? The same was the Mets that time, too. It was not the Mets. Xavier? Well, we have Rizzo on our team, so is it, is it the Yankees? Is the Cincinnati Reds. The Cincinnati huh. Reds got hit 105 times last year. I should clarify, this is the modern era record. But there were 106 hit by pitches already this season for the Mets. After that 106th one, Orioles legend, Buck Showalter, stopped the game so that he could get the record-breaking ball. <laughs> <laughs> and when he was asked in the press conference afterwards, what are you going to do with it? Here is his exact response. It would be obscene to tell you what I'm going to do with it. Okay. He immediately walked that back. He's like, no, I don't have any plans. He gave it to the hitting staff, actually, the hitting coaches. Um, and he, I want to clarify one thing about Buck Walter. He's not doing this to be petty. He does not think that pitchers just, like, have it out for the Mets. He has been saying all season long how the sticky stuff ban, without there being, like, one approved sticky thing that we're chill about, has led to pitchers just having less control over the ball. You could extrapolate to last season and say the Cincinnati Reds probably broke that record because they were checking on things more frequently and you got to come up with like, Hey, here's the one compound that everybody can use. Cause I, I think it's been clear this year. The pitchers need a little bit something. One last thing that I want to touch on going back to that intro that I did, which was by the late Phelo Ramirez, who's a longtime Miami announcer. The man was notable and he was so notable in 2001. He won a Ford C Frick award that was translated his acceptance speech by a man named Jaime Harin, who is another Hispanic play-by-play -play broadcaster with the Dodgers. It is his final season with the Dodgers this year. That is notable because he is going to end with the third longest stint in history with any one team. All of the top three spots are Dodgers. You got 64 for Jaime Harin. You got 67 for Vin Scully. The number one, the longest possible time with one team, it was Tommy Lasorda with the Dodgers, for a very nice 69 years.
Beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. It is a shame that the human lifespan would not allow a tenure of 420, but we will take 69 in the interim. It's the best that we can hope for. And all of that discussion of, you know, the bilingual broadcast that we enjoy nowadays leads us into our larger category for this week. It is, as you don't know, Hispanic Heritage Month, which I still never gotten a good explanation for why it starts halfway through one month and then goes halfway into another month instead of just like being a month. But hey, whatever. That's the decision that was made by whomever the people are that make those decisions. And it's the decision that we are going to honor today. Now, before we go any further, Xavier, you wanted to do some, uh, I guess, categorization? Yes. So there has been you know, some misconstruing or misinterpretations on the internet about Hispanic Heritage Month. And there has been a lot of mixing in of Latin Heritage Month and all the other terms you could think of if they were interchangeable, but they're not. So let's be clear on this. Hispanic Heritage Month means from a Spanish-speaking country. That is what Hispanic means. Latin American means that you are from a country in Central, South, or the Caribbean where the predominant language is one of the Romance or Latin languages. Usually they try to limit that to Spanish in Portuguese, which would include Brazil, but it also does include French, so places like Haiti or Martinique. There's nowhere in the Caribbean that speaks Romanian? You know what? I'm sure there's some Romanian speaker somewhere in there, but English-speaking and Dutch-speaking countries are not included. So Arubans, they are not Latin American. Trinidad and Tobagoans, Jamaicans, not Latin American. So when you say Hispanic Heritage Month, someone does not have to be both Hispanic and Latin. They can be both, but not necessarily are. So pick one. If this is Hispanic Heritage Month, leave it at that. Latin American month can be a different month because it's not going to be the exact same people. And rant. Thank you for that distinction, Xavier, because I can tell you, as somebody that plays a lot of Rocket League in my free time, it is very frustrating that Hispanic Heritage Month released three songs from Brazil, and it's just very much a Brazilian-focused celebration. I haven't seen one thing that is Puerto Rican or Mexican and anything that they're doing. Psionics. If you had just one Hispanic person on your staff, you could have avoided this. Instead, look like payasos. Doesn't mean anything too vulgar. It just means clowns. Don't worry. But they look like payasos. <laughs> yeah, particularly given the like, if you've only released three songs and they're all Brazilian, then you haven't released a single Hispanic song. Really remarkable ignorance. But thankfully, uh, we are not ignorant over here. At- we try pretty hard to not be ignorant, but let's not say with a blanket statement that we've never said anything stupid. I mean, we are, we're all imbeciles in, in our own right. <laughs> but we are at least not willfully ignorant. I think that is, that is the difference. Anyway, building off of that, I think, James, you won last week, so I believe you have leadoff honors. I do indeed. I just wanted to make sure that, you know, the only white person on this wasn't the one making the distinctions between Hispanic and Latin American. This is totally fair. And we appreciate your deference. That's my contribution with the not being able to actually speak Spanish. So it works out perfectly. Yeah, no, I mean, yo puedo hablar todo el español que tú necesitas. But in the meantime, we will keep this English because I want to tell you all the story. There's a lot of beautiful immigrant stories in this country, although I do think that a lot of them kind of straddle the line between uplifting and disheartening. And we're going to go way before my guy gets born, just to kind of set up 
the odysseys that lead to some of these experiences we'll touch on today. We go back to the 1950s, where the family of one Salvador Gomez, who's an undocumented migrant worker, is all living in Modesto, California. This is him and 10 of his children, many of whom, at this point, because they're living in Modesto, California, actually have American citizenship, because they've been born there. Nonetheless, Salvador Gomez and his entire family deported to Mexico. So they end up getting split up. One of his kids, Carlos Gomez, along with a couple more, they go with the mom, actually. They get moved to Tijuana. Carlos Gomez never sees his father, Salvador Gomez, again. So he's been born in the United States, sent down to Tijuana. Eventually, they make their way back to San Diego, where Carlos is able to finish his high school education. After he finishes high school in San Diego, he's got this engineering education. You know what he's going to do? going to go to Anchorage, Alaska and work on some of the oil pipelines there. You know, you've got to follow whatever is available to you at that time. When he gets to Anchorage, Alaska, he meets a young lady named Dahlia, who herself had been born in Colombia before her mother sent her away to the New York City borough of the Bronx to live with an aunt, who then, because of her army husband, also had to move to Anchorage, Alaska, just following whatever opportunity you can. You've got these two improbable odysseys. They have collided with a marriage in 1976. And the two of them, Carlos and Dahlia Gomez, they're going to have three kids. One of them, their son, he is going to start his own odyssey here in Alaska, of all places. And this is going to end with him becoming the NHL's first ever Mexican-American player. My friends, I'm here to talk about Scott Gomez. It's incredible to me that I obviously know Scott Gomez. I never knew he was from Alaska. This is already quite the odyssey. I mean, Alaska should realistically be like a Canadian territory. Let's be real. So he went all the way up north. Now, before we go any further, I did say that he's the NHL's first Mexican-American player. And I do want to make sure we mention one other guy, Bill Guerin. Bill Guerin debuts with the Devils in 91, wins a cup with them even in 95. And he is Irish and Nicaraguan descent. So he is technically the first NHL Latino player. And he's actually going to preempt quite a number of Scott's potential firsts. But we'll get to some of those in a bit. The Devils, man. Devils, the only one taking chance on those Latino players. You've alluded that we'll be returning to New Jersey shortly later on. But what we're going to do first is go back to Anchorage as Scott's grown up in the 80s and 90s because he's not thinking about any potential firsts. He's just a kid in Alaska who, when he's four, gets taken to a University of Alaska game there in Anchorage with his dad, sees hockey, and is just hooked. So he's growing up in the neighborhood in Anchorage of Airport Heights, which might surprise you. It's located right next to the airport in Anchorage. <laughs> he's growing up there and he falls in love with this sport that his parents have no background in whatsoever. Carlos was raised in a big baseball family, but they don't know shit about hockey, but they're in Alaska. It's the thing that they got to figure out. So they learn how to become hockey parents. I and Carlos start hustling for equipment money. They operate a taco stand at the state fair in Palmer, Alaska. He's driving to tournaments after construction shifts. They're doing all of the stuff that hockey parents have done for years to make this very travel and equipment intense sport possible for their kids. Scott is actually so good that in 97-98, his parents have to make one of the biggest decisions that a lot of hockey parents do, which is be okay with their kid moving out and going to join a junior hockey league. He goes down to Kennewick, Washington, where he's going to play for the Tri-City Americans. At this point, he's 16, living with a billet family. He's a pretty undersized center too. He's 5'11 and only 190 pounds. But in his 45 games, that first year with the Tri-City Americans, scores 12 goals, 37 assists. That's good for 49 total points, just over a point a game. And that is enough in the 1998 NHL draft for 
the 27th overall pick to be spent to bring Scott Gomez to the New Jersey Devils. At this point, Bill Guerin is not there, but Scott Gomez, you know, he's got some skates to fill there as he steps into New Jersey. Not going to go immediately to New Jersey. He is going to spend one more year with the Americans after a taste of training camp with the Devils. Oh boy, does he vindicate that 27th overall pick. Plays in all 58 games this season. He scores 30 goals with 78 assists for 108 points in 58 games. Nearly a two-point-per-game pace. After that season, he goes to another training camp in New Jersey. Gets helped out a little bit by a couple of veterans, like holding out for better contracts. But also, his skill has fully earned him a spot on the roster. And so, at the beginning of the 1999 season, he is going to go on and become not only the first Mexican-American player can't be the first Latino player for the Devils. Can't be the first Latino player for the NHL. Those have been crossed out. You know, one other first he gets? He is the first Alaskan-born NHL player. I'm trying to think if that's insane, right? It's insane. Because I'm thinking if there's any sport that there's going to be an Alaskan player, it would be NHL. Right? Also, there's just not a lot of people in Alaska, so I wasn't sure, like... But I would have expected the first one, or at least more of them would have been... Would you have thought that the first Alaskan-born NHL player's name would be Scott Gomez? That's Probably also a not. Trip. That's also a trip. But we're not going to let that define him. He's going to let his play define him this first year with a phenomenal rookie year. He is among the scoring leaders for not only his team, but the league through 40 games. Uh, he's got nine goals and 27 assists about halfway through the season, which is when people really start to kind of notice him. That's when I got a really good profile on him from ESPN. And some highlights of that season, one of them on Boxing Day 1999, this is just three days after he just finally turned 20. His parents come to Madison Square Garden. You know, they were able to stay with him at this point because he had somewhere in the New Jersey area. So the whole family had been together for the holidays. They go to MSG's parents and his younger sister, Natalie, drop him off. And then they see him score his first career hat trick against the New York Rangers. Go ahead. You can boo, Xavier. Go ahead. No, I'm not going to boo Scott Gomez, but ooh. There are some lowlights this season, though, as well. We've talked about Madison Square Garden. Let's go to Philadelphia for a second, Diaz, where we do have a very specific instance that he recalls of being told by a Philadelphia fan to drop the Chalupa. Listen, you can say a lot of things about Philadelphia. A lot of them will be right. The one thing you can't take away from Philadelphia is some creative yet horrifically offensive slurs against minorities. It's pretty bad. It's not the first time he's heard slurs, but drop the Chalupa is pretty bad. Avery, do you remember when uh, Temple played at LaSalle and LaSalle students chanted Taco Bell at Juan Fernandez? I only remember the LaSalle students making fun of Temple grades and pretty much everything else about Temple, forgetting the fact that they're LaSalle. No, I mean, they suck. Don't get me wrong. And also, Juan Fernandez was Argentinian. So, like, if you're going to be racist, at least be accurate about it, you fucking <laughs> Yeah, like, come on, make an Alaska joke for Scott Gomez. Say that he, like, lives in an igloo or something. No, in all seriousness, like, this is a good time to just kind of touch a little bit on the fact that since juniors, I mean, he was a Hispanic kid in hockey, and that was not usual anywhere, particularly in Alaska. Heard all the slurs. He heard, for instance, the slur that is used to title your fantasy baseball team, Diaz, that begins with the letter S. But he's tried very hard to hold his head high. He reminds himself often, in his own words, that those kind of insults typically come from guys riding the bench. So, play well, and who really cares? And he did not want to be seen as any kind of Jackie Robinson. He doesn't want to be looked to as a pioneer. That's not something on his mind. That's not any intention or goal of his. He just wants to be Scott Gomez. He actually says, it's not like I crossed the border with five bottles of tequila and a pair of skates and magic happened. 
It's like, look, I'm just Scott Gomez, guys. I don't need to be anything more than that. However, despite his insistence, I mean, some magic is happening. He appears in the All-Star game his rookie year. He wins the Calder Cup. And then in the playoffs, he scores 10 points on his way to winning a Stanley Cup with the New Jersey Devils. That's a pretty great rookie year, if you ask me. He already has won more Stanley Cups than the Vancouver Canucks. Gomez does tread water a little bit his sophomore year. Runs are like 63 total points. And while he makes it to the Cup again with the Devils, they do lose to the Avalanche that next season. Season after that, been more of a step back, frankly. Does not even get to play in their first round series loss to Carolina with injuries. But despite these down years, he is developing a cult following. Every time that they're in New York metro area, there's all kinds of cheering sections of, of Hispanic uh, citizens in that area, particularly when they go to games against like the Los Angeles Kings, the Anaheim Ducks, the Arizona Coyotes. He is the away player at these games, and he is being cheered by small sections that are just coming, loading up a like, as he puts it, again, I'm trying to not say things that sound stupid coming from a white person. Yeah, there'd be sections of like 50 to 100 Mexicans just all out there cheering for me. It was great. <laughs> so, so what you're getting at is that before there was Lynn Sanity, there was Gomez mania. You are correct. Yes, absolutely. That is what's happening. He's He is exciting people. He is showing a new generation that, hey, this is something you can do. And I am proof of that as Scott Gomez. So the good news is he does not end up just being terrible with this cult following. He does start to kind of right the ship in his fourth season. He is still one of the top two centers for the Devils. Got 42 assists that year, which is really good. And he sees huge improvements in his Corsi and his plus minus, which is what I personally look for with centers. I want to see that your team's controlling the puck. And I want to see that you guys are controlling the scoring, even if you yourself are not putting that up there. This is great because it contributes to another cup for the New Jersey Devils. As this time, they toppled the Anaheim Ducks. I mean, hey, when he toppled them, they were probably cheering him in Anaheim as he did that. Just eating it up. And he gets even better next season when... With a career-high 56 assists, he does once again get some all-star votes and a 100-point Devils regular season. This unfortunately ends prematurely in the first round against Philadelphia, or for you, Diaz, maybe not all that unfortunately. And then there's a lockout, and this is when one of my favorite things that Scott Gomez ever does comes up in his career. A lot of NHL players initially in the lockout got offered KHL contracts to go play in Russia. But Scotty doesn't go. Scotty gets offered one, but Scotty doesn't go, as Matt Damon would like us to know. Instead, he actually goes to the Alaska Aces, located in Anchorage, Alaska, his hometown. They had just been added to the ECHL. That had previously stood for the East Coast Hockey League, but as you can imagine, that had changed because now they had an Alaskan team. The East Coast Hockey League, the year before this, had absorbed the former West Coast Hockey League, and so now they were just calling themselves the ECHL and not referring to themselves as, like, what those letters stood for. Very fake silly. acronyms. Fake acronyms. Love it. So the Alaska Aces had been an independent team for a while, and they'd sucked. They finally have an owner and a GM come in who gets, hey, if we're an independent league team, why don't I just start trying to hire ex-NHL players? So he does that. They finally at least get some fan interest and commercial success. But still, the team's doing pretty poorly. In fact, that owner has to sell. The team, when it is to be put for sale on 2002, <laughs> they're put up for sale on eBay. This hockey team is put up for sale on eBay in 2002. Wait, though, it gets better. The listing is withdrawn after the winning $2.3 million bid was revealed to be a student prank. 
Because, guys, of course it was. You put a hockey team on eBay. You didn't think someone was going to do a stupid prank to you all? Like, I don't I don't know what their expectation was. Should have used Craigslist. Don't they Should have used Craigslist. With Craigslist, you could have audited a little better. And, I mean, yeah, to your point, James, I mean, whenever I think eBay, I think I got my first Xbox. I got a package on there with, it was, like, Madden, Halo, like, a bunch of big games. And... I was in this bidding war back and forth. Swear to you, you know what my winning bid was? Was it 420? So this guy went to $400 and we had just been going back and forth with $10 increments. And I finally said, you know what? I need to throw something at this guy that's just going to stun him. I went to 420.69 and that was the winning (laughs) bid. That That was the winning bid for my first Xbox. These are the kind of characters that are on eBay. Although I am now picturing going on Craigslist Anchorage at some point, you're going through the listings of sales and it's like, Hockey team, $2 million or best offer. Throw a 50-piece out there, see what happens. (laughs) They do eventually sell that team. The Anchorage Aces do continue to exist, changing their name to the Alaska Aces. Scotty comes home. Scotty Gomez comes home in 2004 to play with them. Leads the scoring with, you know, 13 goals and 73 assists in a shortened season. Takes home MVP for the league. The Aces win their first ever division title before they lose in the conference finals to the Florida Everblades. Hold on to that one for next time I do a... The Everblades. That'll be back for a quiz show at some point. Unfortunately, Scotty Gomez is pretty seriously injured toward the end of the season. In the Eastern Conference Finals, in a couple games before the deciding game, he is actually just like rammed into an open bench door by this absolute like one-time prospect now just goon in an independent hockey league ashley langdon of the bakersfield condors he breaks scott gomez's pelvis with just this pointless hit in eastern conference finals for the echl which means i am going to take a moment here real quick i would like to put something to a vote can we ban ashley langdon formerly of the bakersfield condors i'm down i'm down Ban Ashley. that's awful and ashley but i'm gonna also propose that scott gomez is Fellow Scott on the Devils, Scott Stevens, also banned. I I would be more than happy to entertain Scott Stevens the next time we're talking bands. Don't you get me wrong. But right now, we got the vote for Ashley. Unanimous consent on Ashley. We will table Scott Stevens for now. We'll table it. For right now, Ashley Langdon, you banned. I mean, he gets a championship that year, so we do have to take that away from him as well. Too bad, Ashley. Shouldn't have been an asshole. Imagine Ashley Langdon somehow listens to this. Ashley Langdon, if you can hear me right now, fuck you for what you did to Scott <laughs> I regret nothing. If you want to come on and get berated by all three of us, you're welcome to do so, Ashley. We will lift the ban just to yell at you, and then we will ban you again. Now, back to someone that I would like very much to get into the hall today. Scott Gomez. That injury luckily does not keep him out of much of the next season. He returns after this lockout, and there is a lot of rust that a lot of players kind of had to knock off that season. Scott Gomez is not one of those players, despite having just broken his pelvis. He's actually going to have the most goals of his entire career. 33 goals to go with 51 assists. By far his best ever. Uh, Honestly, his best ever in, I think, any league. Definitely more than the ECHL, and I don't think he ever got particularly close in any of the rest of them. So he has a phenomenal team in La Linea Juevo, the egg line. Patrick Elias. Brian Gianta and Scott Gomez, EGG. They all averaged over a point per game for the Devils. They, at the end of the season, are rallied. And according to sources within the locker room, it's primarily Scott Gomez that's doing the rallying. Finish the season with an 11-game win streak. It does get them into the playoffs. 
and they do get a first-round sweep of their hated rivals, the New York Rangers. Then they lose in the second round to the eventual champions, Carolina. But Scott Gomez has got plenty of time. There does start to, though, be a little bit of a frayed relationship between him and the Devils specifically. They end up having a pretty bitter arbitration hearing. They offer him a one-year contract at the end of it. And he does sign on to that, but the writing is on the wall that this is going to be the final season for our boy Scott Gomez in the New Jersey area. He has a solid season, and he's going to go ahead and enter free agency. as one of the top available centers, along with Chris Drury, who was playing for the Buffalo Sabres prior to free agency. And in that offseason, in a kind of insane turn of events at the time, both of those centers, the most coveted centers on the market, are immediately signed by the New York Rangers, to massive contracts. They got Scott Gomez, seven years, 50 million. They got Drury for like three and 40. This is a huge splash in free agency for the Rangers. I'm going to take one moment to say that we almost got Scott Gomez, the first ever Mexican-American hockey player, to be on the same roster as Al Montoya, the first ever Cuban-American NHL player. But there was this guy named Lundquist or something in uh, New York who had like kind of caught on in goal and was making every other goalie in the entire organization Montoya expendable. Was such a waste of a pick. I think, we spent <laughs> a ton, I think we spent like the number three pick or, or something on Al Montoya, and he played like four games before we traded. It was one of those where it's like, oh yeah, we don't have a goalie. Let's get this guy. Oh, this guy that came from Sweden as a seventh round pick is the greatest goalie we've ever had. Okay, sorry, Al Montoya. We'll send you to Florida or something. Sadly, we do not get an Al Montoya, Scott Gomez team up at any time. I was hoping I would be able to find that later on in the career. Rangers, I I do wish that you could have made that happen. But we're fans of the Rangers right now because we're fans of Scott Gomez. You know who's not a fan of Scott Gomez that season? Everyone at the Prudential Center when he goes to play against the New Jersey Devils. He is booed every single time he touches the puck. He won two championships with you guys, and this was clearly an instance of the front office upsetting a player that meant a great deal to the fan base. So, kind of nuts to me that they're booing him quite that much. Can't underestimate the hatred that exists between the Rangers, Islanders, and Devils. Three teams in close proximity, and unlike the other sports... They don't share an arena, so they have distinct fan bases and distinct areas with home ice advantages. So those games get very intense, and they hate everybody. It is an intense game. Scott Gomez does get the last laugh in this one. He gets two assists in a 4-2 Rangers win over the Devils. And then a little bit later in February, he scores his 500th point, assisting a Chris Drury goal, his new free agent center here on the Rangers, and he does it playing against the New Jersey Devils. He's had those two moments now to kind of get some vengeance. I also want to mention that in this year, a young James Fulweiler in a very early Spanish class in high school has to find some athlete to do a Spanish paper on. And so James Fulweiler learns of Scott Gomez at this time. At the end of this season, they go on to the playoffs. Wouldn't you know it? They face the New Jersey Devils. It is a pretty vicious 4-1 series win for the Rangers. They really absolutely kill him before. One more time, they make it to the second round and lose to the eventual champions. This time, it is the Penguins. Scott Gomez has had a a strong first year with this team that brought him on, really in expectations that he and other pieces were going to put him over the top. Let's feel good about it going into the offseason. Let's enter the second year of a seven-year contract again with the Rangers. Uh, Our boy Scott Gomez takes a pretty heavy dive in his overall production. It's his first minus plus minus in almost five seasons. 
and it is a pretty brutal first round loss this time for the Rangers. They actually fire their coach headway through. They bring on Torts. We all know how well John Tortorella goes as a head coach, right, Xavier? <laughs> Good friend Mayer sent me a text of John Tortorella earlier today. Yes, he did. Uh, he sent it to both of us. <laughs> standing above a passed out, fallen on the ice player with the caption, Torts already killed the guy. That is John Tortorella. John Tortorella almost ended the careers of the Sedins that year. He wanted Henrik and Daniel Sedin blocking like three shots a night. He almost killed like the two best players in Vancouver history. He's coached all of our teams and he's great until he kills all of your players. He, he was no, no, there was no great period before that with Vancouver. Well, at least with the Rangers, he was good for a little bit, but he, he eventually kills all of your players because that is what he does. Thankfully, haven't had to see a John Tortorella team yet take the ice in Philadelphia, but it does just kill me how this fucking city loves these stupid assholes that won one championship like 15 years ago and haven't done shit since. At least got rid of Girardi. We still got to get rid of Doc. And I would be surprised if Tortorella survives the year. For some reason, the Flyers not getting Gaudreau when they had space by then trading away good things for terrible players that they gave big contracts to is actual malpractice. So sports doesn't have great players to destroy. I especially loved the part of the Flyers offseason where they got rid of the cancer survivor to sign a MAGA asshole. That was probably my favorite part. Uh, Both of our teams recently got rid of cancer survivors because I'm still smarting over the Orioles train Trey, although I did get to be a part of his standing ovation last evening. No, that was a beautiful reception for him. But yeah, Oscar Lindblom, like the, the whole like team identity the past two years has been like, hey, we might suck. At least Oscar fought back and he's on the ice. Isn't this awesome? All right, Oscar, get the fuck out of here. Tony D'Angelo is saying something about Hillary's emails. Goodness gracious. If, if he does hear this, he would respond because that is why he got kicked out of New York. Good. Let's get him kicked out of Philly. Let's start taunting him some more. Tony D'Angelo banned. I got no issues with that, Xavier. I'm, f- I'm fine with that. Tony D'Angelo banned. We can just throw these out now. Just like New York so carelessly threw out Scott Gomez at this point. They sent him for nothing to Montreal. So he goes to Montreal and unfortunately he doesn't get a whole lot better. He's got three pretty ho-hum stints with them. He goes a whole calendar year at one point without a goal. It's not a good time with the Proof de Habitant for Scott Gomez. Maybe it's too much French. It's just too much French for our Spanish-speaking boy. So he thinks maybe uh, maybe the San Jose Sharks or the Florida Panthers. Those are a little bit more aligned with the culture. But both of his brief stints with the two of those teams, they don't really go anywhere either. The career's on life support. And so Scott Gomez now, in the offseason before the 2014-2015 season, he makes a deal with the devil. Sorry, he makes a deal with the Devils. He does return to the Devils. <laughs> there we go. Actually has his best season since being traded to the Rangers. And on December 28th, 2014, only days after his birthday, this time his 35th birthday, about 15 years almost to the day after that hat trick that he had in MSG, he is once again playing in MSG with the New Jersey Devils against his, well, I guess his third most tenured team because he does spend three years with Montreal. But two teams that he has intense relationship with, the Devils and the Rangers, that is his thousandth game that day on uh, MSG. So it's a nice moment. And it becomes a particularly important moment given that that will be his last season with the New Jersey Devils. The team wants to get younger. And so he is just not offered any kind of contract to return that next year. Starts with St. Louis in the following season, gets cut, has a tryout contract 
for the Washington Capitals, but it is going to be specifically with their AHL team, the Hershey Bears, gets cut. And then Ottawa gets hit really bad by the injury bug. So he gets about 13 games with them that season, almost exclusively on their power play line. He gets his last ever point in his career, March 8th, 2016, on a Mark Stone goal. That season does end up being his final season. Isn't done with hockey yet. He is going to finish out the New York City Metro bingo. He does spend two years as an assistant coach with the New York Islanders. Make sure he gets all of them. And then after that, he really just retires from hockey entirely. Coaching does not really suit him all that much. He just does goofy videos a lot of the time now for media stunts. He has his own show that he uh, has on YouTube called Scotty's House. It's a YouTube series <laughs> where he literally just does activities in his home. He started it during COVID because he, like many of us, I'm sure, was just bored out of his mind. He did also have a podcast, Gomer Time, and then he had an NHL social media interview series. This one was done on their Twitter all the time called Scotty Goes. All of these, again, they're trying to build on the fact that he's also recognized throughout his career, going back to what I was saying about his rookie year, when he didn't want to be a pioneer. He didn't want to be, he didn't want to have people looking up to him for aspects of his identity that he couldn't necessarily control because he didn't think that's what was worth focusing on. He was just trying to be a hockey player. But as this time had gone on, you know, by the time you get to 2015, 2016, you've got Arizona having a much more successful culture in there, if not a more successful franchise. The same has kind of happened with like Miami accepting the Panthers. And you start to see a lot more stars. Rafi Torres enters the season right after him. Now in the NHL, you've got your Austin Matthews. I would argue now in the NHL, very much in part to the cult hero status that Scott Gomez gets, you have the Las Vegas Golden Knights. I don't know if any city that is as Hispanic as Las Vegas is, is going to make its first professional sports team of the big four an NHL team. If someone like Scott Gomez doesn't have this 16-year career that he has. Maintained a foundation throughout all this, the Scotty Gomez Foundation. He starts in 2009. At the same time, he's kind of accepting that role as a pioneer. He, for the foundation, really focuses on the story of his parents and how they got here. You know, his story is insane. He starts in Alaska and becomes the first ever Mexican-American hockey player and has a 16-year career, including multiple Stanley Cup championships. That's amazing. What he thinks is even more amazing is everything that his parents did to even get to the point where that was a possibility. It is undeniable that as he expanded the idea of what a hockey player could be, what a hockey player can look like, what a hockey player can sound like. And for that reason, I, I think Scott Gomez is one of the best possible Hispanic guys we can have. So let me just finish by saying Scott Gomez, un pionero, un diablo, y sobre todo, un guy. Sobre todo un guy. My favorite memories of Scott Gomez will be when he lost the Eastern Conference Finals with Leavitan to the Flyers. But fascinating. I don't think I conceptualized until right now that Scott Gomez would be of Latino descent until you brought him up, honestly. I because I mean there's like uh there's the Diaz that played for the Canadians, but he's actually from Switzerland. So like thought it might have been one of those scenarios subconsciously, but Love hearing it. Obviously, family is so big in, in Latino culture, so I love to hear the deference to his parents. Beautiful stuff. Un guy espectacular. Shout out to Scott Gomez, the second best Mexican-American NHL player ever after Austin Matthews. Do we have Austin Matthews? Without... It's the butter guy effect. Yes, of course, the butter guy effect. It's so important, and it's so 
essential that especially on this podcast of all places we realize that guys could not be guys without guys before them <laughs> eyes all the way down Thing comes up guy guys as far as the eye can see and speaking of more than just one guy scott gomez is of course only one of three that we'll be discussing today i would love to hear who our next candidate for induction is today okay so James, earlier you mentioned not knowing why Hispanic Heritage Month started September 15th. The reason is that September 15th is Independence Day for five different Central slash Latin American countries. Costa Rica, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. We, we said earlier we weren't ignorant, and I've already disproven that less than an hour later. It's all right. We answer every question that gets brought up. But today, I want to talk about one of the greatest soccer players of all time, from Guatemala. I want to talk about El Pescadito, Carlos Ruiz. Not that Carlos Ruiz, Diaz, before you say anything. No, I to yell, chooch. No, 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 I'll say El Pescadito is, is one of my favorite things because uh, when, when he eventually played for the Union, that was so when Carlos Ruiz was the backstop for the Phillies. So they made sure to get a picture opportunity of the two of them together holding up each other's jerseys, and I mean, just such incredible, beautiful joy between the Guatemalan El Pescadito and El Chuch from Panama. And that was, I believe that was our freshman year, so we were in the city of Philadelphia for that joyous occurrence. So, Carlos Ruiz, born September 15th, 1979 in Guatemala City. So, you know, September 15th, maybe Hispanic Heritage Month is also celebrating Carlos Ruiz. And also my dad, Charles Perez, <laughs> who was also born September 15th. That means he's only two months older than Scott Gomez. You know, it, it's all connected. We're getting into guy conspiracies at this point. Conspiracies. The GCU. It's the GCU. Is it the cinematic universe? Because you know, we're in audio format. Is it the GAU? We'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. <laughs> uh, but at the age of 12, Ruiz joined the youth academy of his hometown team, CSD Municipal. He makes his first team debut in 1995 and spends nearly six full seasons with Los Rojos, making 143 league appearances and scoring 69 goals. Be it. <laughs> no, Henial. Henial would be the best, honestly. Henial. I like Henial. Henial is good. So we'll workshop that too. So in 2000, he ends up going on loan to P.S. Giannina of the Greek Super League to get some exposure outside of Guatemala. Quickly decides, no, this is a step too far. I want to go back home. And he goes back to Municipal. Then, January 2002, Ruiz, who's still only 22 at this time, signs with the LA Galaxy of Major League Soccer. Initially, very skeptical. He told the New York Times, I didn't know anything about MLS or soccer in the U.S. Everything we hear about them is not so good. We hear that all the players come here to finish their careers. But he hears correctly, to be fair. Hey, MLS has worked hard in the past 10 years or so to get rid of the retirement league moniker. Still was kind of that at that point. <laughs> they, did, they did have it. And to be fair to Carlos Ruiz, he did say that after a couple of games, he saw the level of soccer there and was excited to play there. Maybe because he thought he was much better than everyone else, which he probably was, because in his first season... He scores 24 goals in 26 games to win the Golden Boot and wins MLS MVP. Just the note, at this point, MLS playoffs, because MLS has changed their format a billion times, it was best of three games and not the one-off games they are now. In the playoffs, 
LA's first opponent is Kansas City, who at that point were the Kansas City Wizards and not sporting KC as they are now. He scores a brace in the first game, including a golden goal, and then two more in the third game as the Galaxy advance on to the conference finals. And scores three more across two games against the Colorado Rapids, leading them to the MLS Cup final against the New England Revolution. This game ends up being a defensive struggle and is tied nil-nil after regulation. In the 113th minute, Ruiz gets on the end of a Tyrone Marshall cross to score a golden goal, winning the cup for LA. This was the last MLS Cup to use golden goal rules, so he will always go down as the last person to score a goal that literally ended the MLS season. He gets named MLS Cup MVP. Oh, that's such a good specific record. Yes. Thank you. So, in Ruiz's first season, again, age 22, Golden Boot, MVP, playoff goal-scoring leader, MLS Cup, MLS Cup MVP. The last ever overtime goal in MLS history to end the season. Yes. He had two golden goals during those playoffs because... For some reason, they had a golden goal in in a non-knockout game in the first game of the first round of the playoffs, which is weird as all hell, but he did have two golden goals in the playoffs. Listen, I just need to say, I'm a massive golden goal advocate in soccer. I'm fine with the two 15 minutes of added time. If we're still tied at that point, we need to play till somebody scores from open play. If you want to say that people get exhausted running around out there, that's fine. We have solutions. You play 15-minute halves, and you take one player off the pitch each half until you finally get a goal. You get down to five on five, and still nobody can score a goal. Sorry, the five that are out there deserve to suffer. Be a better soccer player at that point. Just score more goals. Simple. I like the silver goal the best, because that's the one where if you score in one of those 15-minute periods, they just play to the end of that period, and they don't play the second period. That was how Greece won, that's how Greece won the Euros. They scored, and it's not a golden goal because they couldn't celebrate immediately, but they only had to wait like another two minutes before it was actually over. So it was the Czechs like desperately trying to to score in two minutes. So that's fun. But enough about golden goals. There is still a lot of Carlos Ruiz that has to be talked about. Second season, pulls off a little bit, but still ties for the golden boot with 15 goals this year. Then... Landon Donovan decides he wants to come back to MLS. And this is a weird situation because MLS has weird allocation rules. He had been in Germany, but he had been loaned to San Jose for a couple years, but wasn't officially an MLS player. So to become a full-time MLS player again, he had to go through allocation order, which means you had to have the number one allocation pick for a returning player to MLS. So the Galaxy wanted that but Dallas had it and they knew if you're going to get Landon Donovan for it you better give us something good so they trade Carlos Ruiz to FC Dallas so they can get Landon Donovan racists you know what I'm fine with it through the LA Galaxy how dare they do this to the guy who literally won you a title I don't care that Landon Donovan would then win you many titles Landon Donovan is fluent in Spanish so while he is not Hispanic honors the culture as much as any white person could possibly try to do. So I have to at least give that to him. He did actually have like an advertisement that he appeared in wearing a Mexico soccer jersey and speaking in Spanish and everyone got really pissed because hey, you're America's possibly greatest player ever. Why are you wearing a Mexican soccer jersey on TV for an advertisement 
That's really weird. But you know what? Landon Donovan likes what he likes. Hastily just ban Landon Donovan the way we've been doing with other people that annoy us slightly today. I wouldn't do that to Landon Donovan. I love him too much. He's, he's given me too many great moments of soccer history as a USA fan. I need to think on, on those fondly after the terrible performance they gave at 8.30 in the morning today against Japan. Uh, at least that Japan game didn't mean anything. But before we move back on to Carlos Ruiz, and the Donovan's winner against Algeria, still the top moment in my U.S. soccer fandom. It was incredible. It, I watch it pretty much every month just because it makes me so happy. So now with FC Dallas, Carlos Ruiz has a great first year. 11 goals, two assists, scores two goals uh, in the conference semifinals against the Colorado Rapids, but they do get eliminated on penalty kicks. Couldn't will them just by himself. 2006, he's still doing pretty good. He actually ends up with a bicycle kick that he scores against DC United that gets later selected as the goal of the decade for MLS. Scores 13 more goals this season in 27 games. But once again, Dallas comes up just short. 2007, he's playing in a rivalry game against Houston, the Houston Dynamo. He's been tussling with Ricardo Clark for most of this game. And as a cross comes in, they both go for it. They get tangled up. Ruiz is lying prone on the ground. Clark loses his cool. He winds up and kicks Ruiz as hard as he can in the chest while Ruiz is on the ground, sparking a massive brawl. Clark gets suspended for nine games, which is the rest of the regular season and the entire playoffs, and a massive fine, which is still the longest suspension for an on-field incident ever in MLS. And when I say that he just wound up and kicked him in the chest, this would be considered an assault in any other context. It was... Clearly premeditated, he just wanted to hurt him. That's how bad it was. Things still not going great with Dallas. They fall off even worse this season. Only get seven goals. And eventually he realizes he needs to get a a fresh start. So he gets traded back to the Galaxy. He's excited about this. He said, I still think the Galaxy is the best team in the U.S. They're the best organization. They always have famous players. You know, I'm excited to be here because anywhere else, it would have felt like starting over. But then he suffers a bad knee injury in the first game of the season and misses well over a month. During his timeout, Edson Buttle emerges for the Galaxy and becomes their starting striker. So there ends up being no room left for Ruiz when he comes back. So they trade him to Toronto, who also end up deciding they have no need for him. So they release him after just five games. But like, what does it mean to not need a guy that, the way you described it, single-handedly won a championship his rookie year? So Toronto released him because they signed Wayne DeRosario, possibly the greatest Canadian player of all time, to play for Toronto, aka the first time in almost 15 years that DeRo was back home in Canada. So decided they didn't need him anymore. He kind of got squeezed out by a national hero. It's it's some bad luck. He got squeezed out by a national hero for the second time. Yeah, it's been a bit of bad luck. So, you know, at this point, Reese is like, okay, I got to go somewhere else. I got to get things back on track. So he signs with Olympia of Paraguay. Now he's going South America for the first time. He appears in 18 games this season. 
And he leads the team in scoring with 10 goals, including a hat trick against Club Rubio Nu. Unfortunately, Olympia suffers from some severe financial difficulties and has to let almost all of their top players go after the season. Finally back on track, and now he has to go somewhere else again. You're really making a meal out of these unfortunateys. I feel like you have not had one with this many in a while, and you're you're enjoying it. It's also unfortunately where there's no actual bad things that with lacking repercussions that will happen. So good time to use them. So Ruiz goes to Mexico now. He plays one season with Puebla, scoring nine goals. And then he goes back to Greece, playing for Aris Thessaloniki. Makes his debut in a Europa League playoff against Austria Vienne, becoming the first Guatemalan to play in a UEFA competition. He scored in both legs as Aris made the group stage, but then only scores two more goals the rest of the season before making his way back to America. And yes, this is the second time I've brought up Aris Thessaloniki because that was Nick the Greek's main team as well. Like FC Barca has the two teams, they got basketballs. I know they have many teams, but yes, specifically yes. those two. And you know, Ruiz had, had some good goals, but not nearly the uh, the club legend that Nikos Gallis is. Now Ruiz back in the Americas, back in this hemisphere, and he signs for the Philadelphia Union. Doop, <laughs> doop it up, Diaz. Doop doop. First game of the season. Home game of the season, I should say, scores the winning goal against Vancouver Whitecaps. Also scores goal of the week, week 10, with a 35 yard strike against the Chicago Fire. Scores a couple more goals in the season, has a good season, nothing crazy, but ends up being transferred to Veracruz in August. Veracruz is a bad time for Carlos Ruiz. They have issues. He ends up being inactive for almost a year. As he tries to leave to go back to Municipal, Veracruz won't cancel his contract, and they demand a bunch of money for him, but also won't play him. So he's just kind of there sitting for a while until DC United buys him a year later. This does not last long. It lasts a couple months before he finally gets to go back home to Municipal, where they make him the highest paid player ever in Central America. Being back at home helps a lot. He leads the league in scoring in the 2014-15 season, and Municipal makes the finals of both the Apertura and the Clausura in most Central American leagues. There are essentially two different seasons during the year, like the spring and fall season. Two separate league tables, two separate champions. They end up as finalists in both of them, losing to Comunicaciones both times by one goal. Just the idea of him going back to his original club after crossing over the world and playing for all these great teams and all these great leagues. You know, like in a video game, you play the first level and it's really tough because you don't have good stats yet. Then you go off to all the other parts of the game and you accrue all these talents and you beef up your character. Then you go back to that original area again and you just absolutely wreck shit. That's what I visualize Del Pescadito. It's like his character is up to like level 80. And he's going back to the area where he was originally a level one, and it's just not even fair. He's 35 years old, and he's scoring 20-plus goals in the season. He was the best player, despite his age. But he's not done with MLS yet, as FC Dallas signs him 
on September 15th, 2016, his 37th birthday, solely for the stretch run of like the last game or two of the season in the playoffs. And he does score in the only regular season game that he plays. And then he retires once the playoffs are over. Some real uh, Bill Murray and Space Jam way to go out. I'm in. Do your job. Retire. Going out on top. Of of all the references I thought you were going to pull on that, I did not see Bill Murray from Space Jam coming. I mean, honestly, that five-minute run by Bill Murray in Space Jam might be the most efficient five minutes that any actor has ever had in any film. We, we found another one of our topics next time when we're between seasons, but uh, Xavier, please, we digress. <laughs> so overall, Ruiz played over 20 seasons of professional soccer with 11 different teams on three different continents. He scored well over 200 goals. For MLS specifically, he ended his career with 89 regular season goals, which is currently 14th of all time, and 16 playoff goals, which are second all time, only behind Landon Donovan. And while things change frequently for Ruiz during his club career, one thing that we haven't touched on yet that was incredibly consistent was his ability to perform for his country. Carlos Ruiz played his first ever international match on November 11, 1998, in a friendly against Mexico. Eventually, he scores his first goal against El Salvador in the 1999 UNCAF Nations Cup. UNCAF is the six Central American countries, so being usually on the same level, have tournaments against each other a lot without every other CONCACAF team. They really tired of getting their butts kicked and just bendered that thing right at the end, huh? <laughs> you know what? I, I would too. I mean, the Caribbean has their own tournament as well, so they can do that. I think Puerto Rico did actually well once in one of those tournaments. It did. Well, I mean, and you know, while we're on the topic, Bender Benzine Rodriguez, another Hispanic icon. Hecho <laughs> uh, in Mexico. <laughs> That's the most Spanish you've said today, Xavier. I'm just thinking about the episode where Bender tries to find the place that he was born in Mexico. But I digress as much as I love Futurama. In 2000, he actually gets asked to participate on the Guatemala national futsal team because they had just started their team but were hosting the world championships and they didn't have enough futsal players. This tournament does not go well for them. But Carlos Ruiz does score a goal in the national world futsal championship which is not the sport that he actually plays so a lot of crossover ability there now we're getting to the time where he is really kicking on for his country so we've already talked about how 2002 great for the galaxy but during the 2002 world cup qualification he scores eight goals in nine matches leading guatemala right to the precipice of the hexagonal which at that time was the last stage of CONCACAF qualifying they finished tied with Costa Rica in the group stage, but then do lose one nothing in the playoff. Excuse my ignorance once again. Is there like anyone else on the Guatemala team at this point, or is it just Chooch? It's not Chooch. I know but it's not <laughs> Chooch. I'm in my head. I have been calling him Chooch this whole time. I'm sorry. It's funny to me. No, it's it's just Carlos Ruiz. No disrespect to all of Guatemala's players. Guatemala is not the best, but they punched above their weight. A lot during the time of Carlos Ruiz. Costa Rica is traditionally one of the three powers in CONCACAF, and they took them to a playoff for a spot in hexagonal. 2006, scores another seven goals during that qualification. This time, they do reach the hexagonal. 
On the final day of qualifying, Ruiz scored in a 3-1 win over Costa Rica. However, Trinidad and Tobago beat a weakened, already qualified Mexico 2-1. A draw or a loss by Trinidad and Tobago would have seen Guatemala play Bahrain for a place in the 2006 World Cup. This is still the closest Guatemala has ever come to qualifying for the World Cup. They were one Mexico goal away. 2008, June 14th, Ruiz breaks Juan Carlos Plata's all-time goal-scoring record for Guatemala by scoring four goals against St. Lucia in a World Cup qualification match. At this point, he has 39 goals for Guatemala. Unfortunately, they do not qualify this time either, so he announces his retirement. Two years later, he said, okay, I'm coming back. He's not done yet. Más mierda para... Was it demostrar? Más mierda que demostrar? Uh, para, para probar. Oh. Para probar? Eh, sí, probar es mejor. Lo siento, sigue. He comes back for the Gold Cup. Scores two goals in the Gold Cup, including in the quarterfinals against Mexico. They do fall 2-1. to one. During 2014 World Cup qualifying, he scores another six goals including one in a late 3-1 loss against the U.S., but two late goals by Jamaica against Antigua and Barbuda see them advance out of the group stage on goal difference. Ruiz announces his retirement for the second time. He's still not done. Comes back for the 2018 World Cup qualifying cycle. He's now the second Guatemalan ever to appear in five different World Cup qualification cycles. And he scores a bunch again. In a must-win match against Trinidad, Ruiz scores two goals, but Guatemala get held to a 2-2 draw away in the Port of Spain. So at this point, with one game left in the group, they know that they're not going to make it. So he gets a final farewell match in Guatemala City against St. Vincent and the Grenadines. He scores five goals in this game, which makes him the highest goal scorer of all time in FIFA World Cup qualification. For any confederation, he has 39 goals in 47 qualifying games, which is three ahead of second-placed Cristiano Ronaldo. Overall, he played 133 times for Guatemala and scored 68 goals. He tied for 24th most goals in international history, Romelu Lukaku and Luis Suarez. Only 68 is tough, though. I know. Uh, it's... It's all right. We already had one nice earlier. But I would have loved it if he could have scored a double hat-trick against St. Vincent and the Grandines. Is there a chance? But, no. Come back one more time. El Pescadito a llegar otra vez del lago a meter un gol más. Y entonces, genial. <laughs> you know what? Never say never. He has a full 33 more goals for Guatemala than anyone else ever. And there's only one active Guatemalan player who is even within 60 caps of him. And no active Guatemalan player even has double-digit goals. That's pretty bad. So he has more goals than every single active Guatemalan player that is still around. I'm sure Guatemala would take him back now. Even as he is, they'd be like, just get on the pitch. We, we will take you. So we don't talk enough about Guatemala in this podcast. I want to talk about an actual national legend, the greatest soccer player of all time from Guatemala, Carlos Ruiz. Philly's legend, Carlos Ruiz. <laughs> love that he is also a Guatemalan soccer star. I love two sport athletes. I promise I do understand they are two distinct people. Fine, it's fine. Everyone loves Chooch, so it, it's okay. And I do love Panama as well. It's another great Central American nation. 
Philadelphia was blessed to have two Carlos Ruiz's from Central America in the city at the same time. Have I ever told you both the story of how he got the nickname Chooch? Yes. Yes. It's documented on this show. Is on Okay, as long as it's been on this podcast, I just want to make sure, sift through all our episodes, listeners, and you can find the time that I told that story before. <laughs> oh, El Pescadito, I, I love to learn more about him, because obviously, I mean, I only became aware once he came to Philadelphia, but... I mean, obviously the greatest Guatemalan footballer of all time. And I don't think there can possibly be any debate. Once scored a goal against the U.S., like he scored on Tim Howard. And then when he wheeled away to celebrate, put his arm against the advertising board. And I guess the top must have been sharp because he sliced open his hand just while wheeling away from celebrating this goal. It cuts to him down on the ground holding his bloody hand and then just immediately cuts back to him scoring on a falling over Tim Howard. He bleeds for his country. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of American sports facilities have been constructed in very poor, not conscientious of the athletes' ways. Like when Paul George had his horrific broken leg in that USA basketball scrimmage, because like they put a stanchion two feet behind like the end line. Like, what did you think was going to happen? It would have been planted. They were trying to uh, gut El Pescadito there. <laughs> Well, if we have nothing more on the little fish in the big pond, I'd like to move on to one of the greatest baseball players to ever come from Latin America. First of all, let me take a step back. When we first put forward this topic for the week, I was very tempted to just do a very deep dive on Roberto Clemente. Me, I think, you think Hispanic athletes should probably be the first one to come to mind, at least in the American consciousness. Not just for everything he did on the field, also all of his charity work, the fact that he died trying to deliver supplies to earthquake victims in Nicaragua. I think that's just, that's one of the things that elevates him from a sports hero to just like a legend of humanity. I thought almost everybody is at least tangentially aware of of all the cool stuff going on in Roberto Clemente's career, but I couldn't stray too far from Clemente. I had to stay at least a little bit involved, and I'm definitely going to stay in the sport of baseball as I talk about one of the, and I'm sorry to both of you, great Red Sox legends in the history of baseball, known for his beautiful handlebar mustache, which he still maintains to this day. I am talking about Luis Clemente Tiat Vega, better known as Luis Tiant. I am fine with Luis Tian. I got nothing against Luis Tian. Very few people who ever came across him that had anything to say negative about him. So I'm, I'm glad that you can put your Red Sox hatred into the corner and admire not just the mustache, but also the man. But uh, Luis Clemente Tian Vega, born el 23 de noviembre de 1940. It's November 23rd, 1940 for everybody else. <laughs> In Mirianao, Cuba. Uh, and in English, that's Miria, now Cuba, born to uh, Luis Sr. and Isabel Vega. And before we get into Luis Jr., it's very important to touch on Luis Sr., one of the first great Cuban baseball players, an absolutely dominant left-handed pitcher. Bill James and Rob Nyer rank his screwball pitch as the seventh best screwball of all time. Couldn't find the complete list. I did find that Luis Sr. was ranked as the seventh best throughall pitcher of all time by Bill James, who is a few things about baseball. 
Luis Sr. would spend his summers pitching in the Negro Leagues. Uh, he first started with the Havana Red Sox, which is Miami-based. The Havana Red Sox played in Miami. But uh, he was best known for his time with the New York Cubans. And in the winters, he would then return to the Cuban League, where he played for a few teams, but he was best known for his time playing for the Cienfuegos, 100 Fires in English. There are not a ton of stats that you can find on uh, Luis Sr.'s playing career, but one notable is, and again, you know, we acknowledge that wins are perhaps the worst stat to indicate a quality of a pitcher. But in 1947, his last season as professional, Luis Tiant Sr. went 10-0 in the Negro Leagues and uh, ended up starting for the East in the East-West Negro League All-Star Game in his last year. So at the tail end of his career, still very much one of the best pitchers in the Negro Leagues and uh, certainly one of the best Cubans to, to make the trip to the States and to, to pitch in the Negro Leagues. Luis Jr. is the only child of Luis Sr. and Isabel. And while Junior is a righty, as compared to his father being a lefty, it was clear from an early age that he inherited some of the skill. He stars on youth teams throughout Cuba for his entire youth. And at the age of 16, he makes the Cuban all-star team that travels to Mexico City to play in the international tournament that they were having there. So already at 16 years old, showing great promise for his future. After this trip, Luis Jr. realizes that he could potentially make a career in baseball. He's like, look, I'm, I'm only 16. I'm playing with you know these full-grown adults. I'm on the all-star team. I might be able to make a go for it. His father actually is the one that tries to talk him down from it. This is largely due to, I mean, James, you alluded to it in your story for Scott Gomez. It's unfortunate that a big part of the Latino experience is enduring racism. Luis Sr. was very aware of this and you know not just as a latino but also as a black latino if you're not for people who are listening they may not understand this but latinos can be very racist to other latinos <laughs> and like for for lack of a better term the dark skin versus light skin divide very much a thing within the latino community see sammy sosa yeah sammy so it what he's done to himself it's honest it, it is sad but it's an example of kind of the, the self-loathing that, that some of the darker-skinned Latinos can have. Uh, I mean, Sammy Sosa's been bleaching his skin for years now. So that's just one example of it. So dad saying, listen, not just as a Latino, but as a black Latino, you're going to have it very tough up there. And it's actually Isabel, his mother, that was very supportive of it and said, listen, mijo, this is your dream. You need to follow it. You need to try for it. And you just need to take it as far as it can go. Uh, so... On the support of his mother, he makes his professional debut for the Mexico City Tigers at the age of 18 in 1959. Let's start off too hot. He goes 5-19 with a 5.92 ERA in his first year as professional. But father like son, he's going to spend his summers abroad and then he's going to come back home to Cuba to play in the winter leagues. There are no stats available for the Cuban League at this time, unfortunately, but Story goes that he had a lot more success when he came back to Cuba. And in 1960, his second season at the age of 19, does a lot better for the Mexico City Tigers. Uh, he's able to rack up 17 wins. Again, he comes back to Cuba, plays in the 1960 Winter League. And then we arrive in 1961, which is a very, very big year for Luis Tiant for a few reasons. First of all, he's late in getting to his Mexican team. This is because... 1961, 
the the rise of the Castro regime. A lot of people were leaving Cuba for good. Because of that, the, the Castro regime then tightened international travel. It was a lot tougher for people to get out. So it took a while, but finally he was able to get a Cuban work visa to join his team uh, two months after the season started. Uh, 1961 is big for another reason as well. He meets Maria del Refugio Navarro in Mexico City after watching a softball game that she was playing in. She instantly caught his eye, and sure enough, within a few months, they've eloped. And perhaps at the backs of this, Luis has another really good season for the Mexico City Tigers. Despite missing the first two months, still manages to rack up 12 wins, and then towards the end of the season in August is when they get married. After this season, he's set to come back again to Cuba to play in the, the Cuban Winter League. But Luis Sr. advises against this. Says, look, I would love to meet Maria to get to know her and to introduce her to our family. The reality here is that if you come back to Cuba, your dreams of making the major leagues are probably dead. I don't see any way you're going to get back out of this country if you come back to it again. So he has to make a very tough decision and... He ultimately does take his father's advice. He remains in the greater North America region, and he signs a contract with Cleveland uh, for $35,000, which is about $345,000 in current day money. So a very lucrative contract, but one that in signing, he is basically admitting to himself, I don't know when I'm going to see my family again. I don't know if I ever will see my family again. He does make that tough decision to however long it may be, leave behind his family in Cuba. Tiene que seguir el sueño. Hay que seguir el sueño. And uh, for Luis, el sueño does not immediately take him to the major leagues. He first pitches in the Eastern League for Charleston. The AA classification did not necessarily exist at this time, but essentially this is their AA affiliate. That's fine in year one. Puts up a 7-8 and eight record with a 3-6-3 ERA. The next year, he pitches in the Carolina League for Burlington. He's 14-9 with a 2.56 ERA. He also pitches a no-hitter during the season. And notably, he is by far the best pitcher in this league, which is evidenced by the fact that he leads the league in complete games, shutouts, and strikeouts at the age of just 22 years old. Next winter, people are thinking, okay, maybe this is time that Luis gets called up. He has left off the 40-man roster entirely. He goes unclaimed. So he first reports back to Burlington. And then uh, when there's an injury with their AAA affiliate in Portland, he gets his call up. Very quickly, Luis has proven that uh, AAA is not the league for him because he's just simply too good for it. He goes 7-0 in his first few starts at AAA Portland with a 2-2-5 ERA. He does lose a game. He loses one. How dare he? Then he wins eight more in a row while dropping his ERA <laughs> to 2-0-4. <laughs> this point we are, it's pretty good uh yeah at this point we're, we're approaching the middle of the summer he has a 15 and 1 record with a 204 era and a to this day pacific coast league record 938 winning percentage so it's a it's his 15 and 1 record that's just what that math is. right 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 it's, mm. it's not necessarily it starts in games where you factor into the decision what is your winning percentage there's never been anyone who's gone one and oh and never gotten another decision i mean that shit doesn't count <laughs> there's, we all know whenever there's a record how many starts would it take i'm not sure exactly where the cutoff is but we all know that whenever it comes to a percentage-based statistic there is a minimum 
kind of kind of common throughout every sports league. So may never be matched again, may never be surpassed. And it finally comes to July 18th, 1964, and Luis Tiant gets his call up. Manager for Cleveland at the time, first of all, great baseball name, Bertie Tevitz. That's yeah, a good baseball that name. That is Bertie as in one under par, not like the senator from Vermont. It is Bertie. As soon as Luis arrives, he asks him, hey, kid, do you think you're ready? And Luis says, absolutely, yes. So the next day, the New York Yankees are in town, and the Yankees are sending Whitey Ford to the mound. So they said, go ahead, kid, get out there, see how you can do. They go up against the chairman of the board. To the chairman of the board against the evil empire, uh, Whitey Ford, one of the greatest pitchers in Yankees history. Let's see how you do. Luis is up to the test. He has 11 strikeouts across nine innings in a four-hit shutout of the Yankees in his uh, Major League debut. Love that. Big pretty fan. good. That's pretty good. So not only did the Yankees lose, a lot of teams lose when Luis Tian is going against them in this first year. He finishes the 10-4 and record in that kind of half season that he's called up. The 2-8-3 ERA in the bigs. So combined between AAA and Major Leagues, he goes 25-5, and the 2-4-2 ERA. Quite a debut. Really good. Really ramping up, and uh, we're expecting a big 1965 from him. And uh, unfortunately, we don't get that. As he's kind of dealing with a sore arm all year. Goes 11 and 11, respectable. 3-5-3 ERA. Again, respectable. And, you know, while he is not able to return to Cuba, he's still getting fatherly advice. Letters to his father, they're writing back, letting him know how he's doing. And dad, even though he's not able to see Luis Jr., he says, son, you might pitch a little better if you lose some weight. Luis Jr. takes that advice. He comes back to camp 20 pounds lighter and starts the 1966 season in incredible form. Three consecutive shutouts to open 1966 season. Then he goes in for game four. He visits Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. And uh, Frank Robinson had enough of this Luis Tiant shit. James, <laughs> this is a part of Orioles lore that you may well know. Frank Robinson hits a home run out of Memorial Stadium. Literally out of the stadium. It is the only home run ever be hit out of the stadium. That is correct. If you were to try and find the spot where it is now, uh, it's definitely in the corner of 33rd Street and Enzer Avenue. That's also 1966 MVP Frank Robinson to you. Thank you very much. <laughs> World Series champion. You, use the full title. I, I do not mean to besmirch. I only mean to say... That Frank Robinson was so good that he said, enough of your shutouts, Luis Tiant. I am taking your bitch-ass yard. Frank Robinson does that. It's the only time it ever happens. And this kind of is like a, a glass-shattering moment almost for Luis Tiant. It's like, oh shit, I'm in the major leagues. Struggles a lot thereafter. He actually gets demoted to the bullpen. Does retain a role as their closer. Gets eight saves. Despite the fact that he was moved to the bullpen very early in the year. Only 16 starts as five shutouts, which led the American League that year. Finishes with a 12 and 11 record and a 2.79 ERA. In 1967, goes 12 and 9 with a 2.74 ERA. But it's the next season that Luis Tiant really makes his footprint on baseball. 1968 registers one point in this season, four consecutive shutouts, and the best of these shutouts within this streak is a. July 3rd game when the Minnesota Twins visit Cleveland. Across 10 innings, he has 19 strikeouts. In the top of the 10th, the first two base runners do reach. They get on the corners. 
Luis knows any balls in play are probably going to result in a run. He just goes ahead and strikes out the side after that, locks in. They managed to squeeze one across in the bottom of the tent to give Cleveland a one nothing victory in this 19-strikeout shutout that Luis Dion has. That's a very good antecedent of, you know, the modern Jacob deGrom games. <laughs> I mean, yeah, deGrom's like the only guy that does that anymore. And I mean, in deGrom's case, it would be a no decision in a 13-inning loss. But, you know, on the back of that performance, uh, he was named an All-Star, and he actually goes ahead and he's the starting pitcher in the All-Star game the very next week. Uh, his dominance continues coming back out. He finishes the season with an... American League best 1.60 ERA and nine shutouts for the season. 5.3 hits per nine were also the best in baseball that year. But because he only won 21 games, does not win the Cy Young this year, doesn't actually even place in Cy Young voting at all because that's how much they cared about wins back then. 21-9 record with his 1.60 ERA and nine shutouts are enough for him to finish fifth in MVP voting. Despite not placing in Cy Young voting, still finishes fifth in MVP voting. Same people voting. I just don't mathematically understand how that would happen. I guess it is the same voting blocks. I wish I could just be a fly on the wall in the rooms where they had these discussions. It doesn't make any sense to me either. That was just such an anomaly. I had to make sure to point it out. Follow-up season, 1969. Nice. Wasn't nice for Cleveland. Wasn't nice for Luis either. (laughs) His ERA climbs up to uh, 3.71, but it's worth noting that there were changes in the mound. And also, I never realized that they just decided to change the strike zone at one point. But this was not good for pitchers, and uh, ERAs rose across the league that year. Because we we could also real quick point out that Luis Tian, despite that ERA, he did not have the lowest ERA in baseball the season before. Right, yeah, there was a lower ERA in the National League. It was the American League best, 1-6, yes. yes. But Bob Gibson got him. I mean, I'm not going to say unfortunately, Bob Gibson's fucking awesome. The dead ball era. With that 3-7-1 ERA, you would think he would still have close to a 500 record. You'd be wrong, because Cleveland sucked that year. <laughs> he goes 9-20 and with his 3-7-1 ERA. This winter, Cleveland decides it's time to move on from him. So he's traded to Minnesota. 1970, it's another down year for him. At one point, having arm pain, it's discovered that he actually has a fracture in his pitching shoulder. So he just takes 10 weeks off to recover, but still isn't really able to come back. Despite fighting through all this, he still managed to put up a 7-3 record with a 3-4-0 ERA across 18 appearances. Next year, spring training, he's feeling great, says I'm fully back. Then he strains his abdomen. Twins look at this and they're thinking, okay, this guy's 30 years old. His body's starting to break down. We think he's done. So they give him his unconditional release and he is now completely a free agent. The Atlanta baseball team offers him a one-month minors contract. He does okay, not great, but ultimately they decide after the month that they are not going to promote him. Instead, the Red Sox AAA affiliate in Louisville takes a chance on him, and he does pretty well. Across 31 innings, he registers 29 strikeouts and a 2.61 ERA, and after the month, they decide, you know what, it's time to call Luis up. Does not do very well at all in Boston in his first season. His debut start, uh, he gives up five runs in the first inning before he's pulled, which prompts Boston Globe reporter Cliff Keene to write, quote, latest investment by the Red Sox looked about as sound as taking a bag full of money and throwing it off of Pier 4 into the Atlantic. People like to think sports media is toxic now, 
people don't realize how much shade these sports writers were throwing back then. He goes on to lose his first six decisions in Boston, and he eventually gets relegated to the bullpen again. Following this season, most Boston media is thinking, okay, he's probably going to be let go of, but he's actually kept aboard in what I'm going to dub the utility pitcher role. We need a spot start, <laughs> send Luis out there. Starter got shoved, we need somebody to eat some innings, Jordan Lyle style. We're going to send in Luis. But uh, you know, also, we need to close out the game, bring in Luis. Does a little bit of everything. After he has some success, they decide to give him back his spot in the rotation. Start of August. First two starts back in the rotation. Uh, he beats the Orioles in both of them. Then he goes ahead, goes to Comiskey Park, and gets a two-hit shutout against the White Sox, which officially cements his spot back in the rotation. And on the back of some of the momentum of Luis's resurgence, Red Sox are starting to make a move. They were well back in the pennant race, but now they're starting to climb back into it. They have a massive doubleheader at Fenway with the Orioles. So this is a massive series for the Red Sox. And they managed to take game one, so now the, the crowd is really revved up to, to potentially take game two and sweep both legs of the doubleheader. Luis is already a fan favorite because of his redemption arc here, right? He, he sucked when he first came up. He's been able to, to prove himself. He's now back in the starting rotation. As he walks out to the bullpen between games, the crowd is already chanting his name. Louis, Louis, Louis. He is dazzling throughout the entire game. And when he steps up to the plate in the bottom of the eighth, because again, the DH rule did not exist this time. Baseball was still pure. Luis steps up to the plate. The fans begin giving him a standing ovation. He does get out to end the inning. Ovation doesn't end at any point during his at-bat. Ovation does not end at any point while he is warming up for the ninth inning. Ovation does not end until he has recorded the final out of the ninth inning to cap off his complete game shutout. Seven strikeouts against just four hits. Pretty good. Conceptualizing, this is essentially about 10 minutes straight. Fenway Park, all on their feet, all giving an ovation for Luis Tian. Against a good Orioles team. It's a very good Orioles team. I mean, yeah, you had Frank, you had, uh, was Brooks there at the time? By 72, Brooks might have moved on, but you definitely got Frank. You probably have Boog still. Blair is on the team. I would think Belanger is probably there. Like, it's, the Orioles win a thousand games in the 1970s. Right. I mean, yeah, the, the 70s is very much the decade of the Orioles. So for Luis to put up this kind of performance against that caliber of opponent, is just something that absolutely is awe-inspiring for the Boston crowd. And it's also awe-inspiring for one of the greatest Red Sox of all time, Carl Yastrzemski. He says after this game, I've never heard anything like it. I'll tell you one thing. Piat deserved every bit of it. All the Red Sox do not come back to win the pennant that year. Piat does finish 15-6 and and claims his second ERA title with a 191 ERA. Wins Comeback Player of the Year... Does finally place in Cy Young voting, he finishes 6th, also finishes 8th in MVP voting. Along the way, he cements his status as a Sox favorite for life, and this is not a phenomena that was unique to Boston. Anywhere Luis Tiant went, absolutely beloved. In 1968, he was named the most beloved player for Cleveland, and when the Twins released him in 1970, their publicist Tom May said the locker room scene was, quote, the most forlorn experience I've ever had in baseball. 
While he was with the Red Sox, John Curtis, one of his teammates, wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe explaining to his wife why he loves Luis Tiant more than he loves her. <laughs> Fellow teammate Dwight Evans would say, quote, unless you've played with them, you can't understand what Louis means to the team. Obviously, part of his charm is his appearance. I mentioned the handlebar mustache, his charisma. According to many witnesses, he would very frequently, after a game, he would go into the showers. He would emerge from the shower wearing nothing, no towel, no nothing, except for a lit cigar in his mouth. He would walk up to the mirror in all of his glory. He would just stare himself and say, good looking son of a bitch. That's badass. I like self-confidence like that. A, a less creepy taxi driver mirror pep talk. Right. And, and yeah, and just to himself. Guys being dudes naked in the locker room and just admiring themselves, right? That's that's what we're here to say. You know, the self-pep talks were, were definitely necessary for, for Louis at this point because by now, you know, we're in 1974. It's been about 12 years since he's ever been back to Cuba to, to see his family. His parents have never met his wife, never met his children, of which he has three by this point. So in a 1974 interview, he would basically lament the fact that his father hasn't been able to see him pitch professionally yet, that he hasn't been able to see his father in so long. Father is getting up there in age at this point, and he's basically not sure how much time he has left. The other thing that he's sure to reemphasize anytime he brings up his father, he says, I am nowhere near the pitcher my father was. So again, going back to his roots, this becomes a thing that actually catches the attention of Congress. In May of 1975, uh, Senator George McGovern of South Dakota is on a state-sanctioned visit to go see Fidel Castro. When he goes, he brings with him a written plea, which is co-penned by Edward Brooke III, uh, the senator from Massachusetts, making a plea to the Castro regime that the Tiants be allowed to come to America to see their son play. Whatever you want to say about Fidel Castro... The man loves baseball, and he certainly is empathetic when it comes to a thing like that. So the next day, he grants it. And on August 21st, Isabel and Luis Sr. land at Logan Airport in Boston. They are met by Luis, his wife Maria, and their three children. These scenes are captured by local news crews and the entire Tian family just openly weeping of joy. Isabel declares to the reporters, I'm so happy, I don't care if I die right now. So they're just absolutely thrilled. Five days later, Luis Jr. is set to take the mound at Fenway. And they decide, why don't we bring out Luis Sr. throughout the first pitch tonight? Luis Sr., of course, he's a pitcher. He's not going to pass up this opportunity. <laughs> he goes into his full windup. He fires a fastball. He one-hops it before the plate. Aww. He is visibly annoyed. He immediately asks for the ball back. <laughs> This is Louis Sr., so of course he's going to get his way. And he throws a knuckleball this time instead of the fastball, which dances its way right across the plate. The fans give a massive ovation for Louis Sr.'s first pitch. Louis Jr. would say afterwards, Dad told me he could go four to five innings for us anytime we need him. The whole family just oozes confidence. whole family. And to be able to go on the journey that Louis Jr. has been on, need to have self-confidence. So certainly he got that from his father, and uh, the scene is sent for Luis Jr. to take the mound, and Luis Jr. does not do too well that night. That whole season was somewhat of a struggle. In fact, you know, local reporters are kind of lamenting the fact, like, man, 
Louis Sr. could have made it up here just a year earlier. He could have seen his son in all his glory, but he kind of looks like he's over the hill now. But, you know, this wasn't like it was a one-off thing. He has to go back to Cuba. The Tiant family stays united in Boston for this entire season. After that bad performance on the night that his father throws out the first pitch, he takes 10 days off and uh, he bounces back with seven and two-thirds of no-hit ball on September 11th. Again, with Louis Sr. in attendance. Asked Louis Sr. afterwards, like, ah, oh, your son could have had a no-hitter if it wasn't for that lucky hit. But game-recognized game, Louis Sr. said, don't tell me anything about a lucky hit. I was just a nice piece of hitting by that guy. <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're going to go forward from September 11th and in a five-man rotation. I'm just going to bring this forward to September 16th. And September 16th goes down as one of the beloved games in Fenway Park history. The Orioles are in town. They're knocking on the door. They're just four and a half back of the Red Sox. And they're sending Jim Palmer to the mound. Sox, of course, have to respond with their own boy, Luis Tiant. He's been struggling all season. This night, it doesn't matter. Capacity for Fenway at this point is 35,000. 40,000 stuff in the Fenway to witness this game. Luis does not let them down. He turns back the clock. And as the Luis chants once again ring through Fenway, puts up a five-hit shutout and a 2-0 victory over those Orioles. On the back of this and on the back of a couple more strong performances for Luis to close out the season, they go on to the ALCS. He opens this with a three-hit shutout, which leads the way for the Sox to sweep their way and make it into the 1975 World Series. Starts game one, and a five-hit shutout powers the Red Sox to a game one victory, and they go up one nothing on the Reds. Now, coming back for game four, they've managed to drop game two and three, so in a crucial Game four, Luis has perhaps his grittiest performance of his entire career. In almost every inning, he's getting himself in the jams. Getting one run across here and there. After throwing 163 pitches, logs the complete game victory in a 5-4 win to draw the series even at two with the Big Red Machine. Game six, we're back at Fenway. The Red Sox are down 3-2. Luis Tian is gifted a 3-0 lead. Fortunately... Just not Luis's night. He's up being pulled when they are down six to three now to the Reds. And uh this is the game that goes on to be one of the biggest in Red Sox and honestly MLB history. Carlton Fisk bails out Luis Tiant by waving the ball fair down the left field pole, forcing a decisive game seven, which you know your baseball history, you know for sure the Red Sox did not <laughs> win that game. So the Reds win the 1975 World Series and the Tiant family basically decides at this point, we got a pretty nice life up here in Massachusetts. The whole family's here. We got grandkids. Might as well just stay. So the Tiant family stays up for the whole 1976 season as well. Reese has another good season, 21 wins and a 306 ERA, and he qualifies for his second All-Star game. At this point, it's basically decided the Tiants are going to stay together for as long as they possibly can. And unfortunately, uh, it was not for much longer at this point. Following the 1976 season in December, Luis Sr. has been dealing with a lung illness. Uh, he does ultimately succumb to this illness in December of 1976. Two days later, his mother, who was not ill at all, also passes away. So in, in the span of this one-off season, in about three days, Luis loses both of his parents, but thankfully, through the lobbying of the U.S. government, and this will be the only time that I will sing the praises of the U.S. government on this podcast, 
they're able to reunite this family through collaboration with the Castro regime. And the, the sadder ending would be if Louis Sr. and Isabel passed away down in Cuba and never got to see him. So, you know, at least we get these beautiful moments. At least we get to see Luis Sr. throughout the first pitch. Despite that tragedy, Luis Jr. todavía tiene más mierda para probar. 1978, they're in quite a tight race with the New York Yankees for the pennant. They're trailing by two games with eight games left to play. Luis Tiant knows the situation when he takes the hill in Toronto and he says, if we lose today, it will be over my dead body. Had to leave me face down on the mound. Walk is cheap. Walk is better. He doesn't walk anybody in this game, actually. He goes out and leads Red Sox to victory. Sparks an eight-game winning streak to close the season. And on the last day of the season, the Yankees have also been hot. The Yankees win 6-7 going into the last day. So with just the one-game deficit, they know we need to win, and we need the Yankees to lose, and we can force this one-game playoff. He goes against the Jays, and with all the money on the line, as he has done so consistently for the Red Sox, goes out and pitches a two-hit shutout. The Yankees lose, which forces a one-game playoff, Fenway Park. And, Xavier, if I say the initials, you're going to know what I'm talking about. EFD. Bucky fucking Dent. It's a good Bucky fucking Dent for the Yankees, because Bucky fucking Dent hits that three-run homer, despite being a career slap hitter, to sink the Red Sox Obviously not against Luis. Luis pitched on the last day. He does not pitch in this game. Maybe it would have been better if they just lost and they don't have to suffer through Bucky fucking Dent. But at any rate, when the money was on the line, there was nobody that the Red Sox wanted on the hill more than Luis Tiant. And time and time again, he just delivers. Locker room realizes this. The clubhouse realizes this. Management does not realize this because Luis is now 38 years old. And they think that he's not worth his contract demands. Agency is becoming a thing in baseball at this point. So they let Luis go to free agency. And he signs with New York Yankees. Yankees were the only team that were offering him what he felt he was worth. Teammates do not hold this against them. They hold it against management. White Evans and uh, Yastrzemski both say they openly wept once they heard the news. Stremsky would say, quote, management tore out our heart and soul. Without their big game pitcher, the Red Sox do not sniff contention again for some 20 years. Always management's fault. Always blame management. Again, he was 38 years old at the time, so he gets his big contract. This is kind of the the end of any real drama within Luis Tian's career. Uh, he, He would play four more years, spends two with the Yankees, Enters over to the National League for one year with the Pittsburgh Pirates and finally ends his career at 41 years old with one last season playing for the California Angels. Luis retires with a career record of 229 wins against 172 losses with a 3-3-0 ERA. 187 complete games versus 484 games started. Pretty good. About 40% of the times that he takes the hill. Nobody else has taken the hill that day for his team. That just makes it all the crazier to me that he got put in the bullpen at any point because that ability to soak up innings just seems like such a fucking asset. Why would you ever put that in the bullpen? My goodness. Right. I mean, it is important to remember in context as well that Kings didn't care about the long-term health of their pitchers. A lot of guys were pitching a lot of complete games, but it is still something you need to do. It's still very impressive. To your point with the bullpen, tenure, James, uh, he also logged 49 career saves. For my money, 
one of the greatest pitchers to not make the Hall of Fame. He actually never went above 30%, which seems insane to me. And I think this is one of the things where people get too caught up in the stats. 229 to 172 and a 3-3 OERA. It's definitely Hall of Very Good worthy. Maybe not necessarily Hall of Fame worthy, but as I tried to spell out as best as I could in recounting Luis Tian's story, Every time that the Red Sox needed a big game and they needed to send somebody out there to handle the pressure situation, they always called on Luis Tian and he always delivered. Very similar to Kurt Schilling, except not racist. I think (laughs) the case is for Luis Tian to be in the Hall of Fame. But also learning about just the the father-son relationship that he had was, was very fun for me in doing this research. Always deferential to say, like, hey, look, I am the second best Luis Dion to ever pitch. Best is my father. To always be deferential for that. And the fact that he was able to have that moment with his father throwing out the first pitch at Fenway. Being mad that at 69, he threw a fastball in the dirt and then demanding that he get a second pitch. And of course they gave it to him because he's the father of Luis Dion. Are you going to say no? That is my pitch for Luis Dion. I always read it as Luis Titan. When I was first growing up, I would always read like the the baseball books that they had at the library. So a little bit of dyslexia by young Diaz there, but we we're able to set the record straight. Luis Tiant, his beautiful handlebar mustache and his cigar in his mouth, a beautiful son of a bitch. Beautiful son of a bitch. The beautiful bigote, Luis Tiant. No, it's an excellent pitch, much like many of the ones that he threw. You did pick a lot of specific, like, hey, fuck the Orioles moments. <laughs> you picked some very explicitly. I know you gave me that one, Frank Robinson. I appreciate that. That was a lot of anti-Orioles. Here's the thing. If I, this is complimentary to the Orioles because any time that they were going against that vaunted franchise, the 70s Orioles, they said, we got to send Louie out there. Louie is the only guy that we trust to deliver against this team. He just did it time and time again. Big-time players step up in big-time games, and Luis Tian had a big-time mustache, and he had some big-time games. Do you like the big-time mustache? Pues, nosotros tenemos nuestros tres hombres. There is no Spanish word for Guy Bunel, so we'll go ahead and return to English as we have the Guy Bunel return to decide between these three. As much as I'm goofing about, Carlos Ruiz was fascinating to me, specifically for... This electrifying rookie season that just gets absolutely squandered by the MLS. Like, MLS, what are you talking about? You want to not be the retirement league, and you don't know what to do with this incredible guy. And as you said, Xavier, twice, it was the freak occurrence of, oh, a national hero wants to come play for this franchise, so we got to make room for it. But my goodness, not Chooch Carlos Ruiz is my front runner initially. I am obviously biased. I am a big fan of Guatemalan Carlos Ruiz and his ability to just score goals pretty much wherever he goes. He'll score some goals. His willingness to go from Guatemala to Greece, I think, is one of the things that I found like most interesting because that is not where you would expect because, I mean, at least nowadays, MLS is a big league for Central America and South America where a lot of players will go there first in hopes of getting some eyes on them so they can make the jump to Europe. I wish I could have found out what was the connection between Municipal, Guatemala, and Greece. 
Like, how did how did Greek scouts from the Greek Super League be like, ooh, we need to get this guy on loan. Let's call up Guatemala. I wish I could find that out. I might have to just email or message Carlos Ruiz to see if even he knows. Because I am fascinated by that idea. I feel like with the Greek League, like, you really need to dig deep. Like, you're not going to be able to scout and recruit from, like, the most common talent pools. So, numbers themselves jump off the page. I mean, I don't think you even needed to necessarily have a scout. Be like, he had how many goals in how many games? Okay, that guy can play. You said it's not like there's a roaring Guatemalan soccer team, at least in, in terms of being competitive with the other nations. So, it seems like the kind of place that a Greek team may be like, yeah, we'll probably afford a Guatemalan soccer player. Affordability feels like it's probably right up there. It's, like, it's a factor. I get some jewels from Central America. Yeah, my pitch for Scott Gomez would just be as unique as El Pescarito's career is. Being the first Alaskan-American hockey player it floors me. It absolutely floors me. And then for <laughs> the first Alaskan-American hockey player to come from as far away from Alaska as you could possibly get in North America, you know, his, his parents' uh, lineage, it just fascinates me. I, I, I just absolutely love that. Being the first of anything is always tough. I mean, to your point, James had to deal with several slurs being hurled his way from the time he's in juniors, which, like, fuck you if you're calling a little kid a spit. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Man, remember when Philly told him to drop the chalupa? Listen, I love my city. It can be very ist. It can be, it can be several ist, and racist is one. <laughs> There's, yeah, no, you can just like pick a noun and put it in front of ist, and you can find someone in Philly that fits that description. So, I mean, I think we have quite the trio here. It's tough for me to even say if I'm leaning any one way or the other. It's like very neck and neck to me. I'm, I'm curious where you're leaning, Xavier. So, I like Luis Tiant a lot because I like the self confidence. Oh, I just really like not Chooch Carlos Ruiz. I was very, I, I very much enjoyed Guatemalan soccer, which is not a thing that even me, person who loves soccer from all over the world, was too familiar with. But it made me remember, oh yeah, I did see him in CONCACAF qualifying for like 20 years. He was just always there for Guatemala. And he just was randomly popping up in MLS every couple of years. I was too young to watch the 2002 LA Galaxy, but I saw him score for the Union and for DC and for Dallas and in like the 2010, 2014, and 2018 World Cup qualifying cycles. And the fact that he was playing for 10 plus years before then, scoring a bunch of goals, and we still think that he can come back and be the best Guatemalan right now, the ageless wonder. I will defer to El Pescadito over Luis Tiant. Solely for the fact, and this has nothing to do with any of the guys, James, you've got to end your winning streak. You've won like three in a row. It's too much. <laughs> <laughs> no three-peat. We're never going to allow a three-peat. That's what it is. It's, listen, and it's nothing against Scott Gomez. I think he's a fantastic guy. I think he's a trendsetter. I'm a little jealous. You know, I'm, I always am mad that I didn't get into ice skating earlier in life. I feel like I have a good mind for hockey. Could have been something there. So Scott Gomez is kind of my... Um, Hockey alter ego. I'll, I'll put it that way. How does that feel? He's who I wish I could have been. But, but okay. because you're the one that nominated him, I cannot in good conscience vote for him. So I think we can reach our decision. Entonces, es uh, nuestro honor para decir que 
el pescadito, el mejor guatemalteco en la historia del fútbol. Bienvenidos a nuestro Hall of Guy, Carlos Humberto Ruiz Gutiérrez. Welcome to the Hall of Guy. Yay! Scotty does not go into the Hall of Fame this time, unfortunately, but that's all right. We've had another phenomenal discussion here, and I'm very happy with the selection of Carlos Ruiz. Celebrate Guatemala tonight. Celebrate Guatemala. Hey, if you haven't already, celebrate the 2022 WNBA champion Las Vegas Aces. It's just like I've been telling you for the last four years, guys. Like, I've been calling it. Four times a charm. It's incredible. Asia Wilson, Kelsey Plum, all of them. No, the Kelsey Plum picture with the cigar is like probably a top five championship picture that I can ever think of. It's incredible. I would risk it all for Kelsey Plum. That can be on record. Every single member of that team. The We now found out pregnant Dierica Marie Hamby, who was relatively quiet in the playoffs. And I guess that explains a little bit about it. My God, though, man, I got to watch all three teams that were active played a game that day. I got to watch exactly 20 minutes of sports. It was the Aces winning the championship. I said during that Ravens game, as we were up like 28 to 7, you know what? I'd still trade a Ravens loss for an Aces win today. And the monkey paw heard me and it curled. And I live with that wish happily. Hermano <laughs> de mono. Con este, si ustedes no tienen más que discutir aquí. Creo que es el tiempo para terminar. Muchas gracias otra vez por todos que están escuchando a Rita. Fue un otro episodio de Recuerde a ese hombre. Yo había sido James. I am the fan of the team that won a game despite being down 13 with 1 minute 55 seconds last week. Special guest Xavier. Yo soy Díaz y como dije Roberto Clemente, un país sin hombres es nada. A country without guys. It's not the